So it's uh, a great honor to welcome Professor Robin Cohen to LSE this evening. Um, just to say firstly, this event has been organized uh, as part of the series of events in the uh, run-up to the New World Disorders series, um, which will be held at the LSE uh, Festival starting on Monday, 25th of February. Um, so the series is exploring how social science can tackle uh, global issues facing us today, uh, what are those challenges, and um, importantly, what can be done about those challenges. Um, the events are all free and open to all, and tickets are now available online if people would like to, uh, to book. So uh, this event with Robin has been organised by the International Inequalities Institute and by Dr. Suzanne Westendorf uh, in particular. And um, Robin, I would say, is uh, truly one of those prolific scholars whose work very much engages with global challenges. So um, I think it's entirely appropriate that we should have him here in the run-up um, to the festival. So his talk tonight addresses the major challenge of uh, the mass displacement of people across the world and what can be done at the transnational level to address uh, mass displacement. Robin is Emeritus Professor of Development Studies at the University of Oxford, uh, Senior Research Fellow at Kellogg College and also former Director of the International Migration Institute at Oxford. His uh, family um, and himself have a strong connection with LSE. So Robin did his master's here in the 1960s. His daughter Miranda, who's here tonight, did her first degree in politics and history at LSE. Uh, and of course his late brother Stan Cohen held the Martin White Chair in Sociology at LSE. Robin has worked in Nigeria, uh, Trinidad, and after the end of apartheid in his birthplace, South Africa. And in the UK, he's held chairs at Warwick as well as at Oxford. His early career was focused on labour issues in Africa and the study of islands, which we were talking about uh, a minute ago. And, of course, since the early 1980s, his work has been foundational to the development of migration and diaspora as fields of study, including his seminal work on global diasporas, on the relationship between global capital, migrant labour and the nation state, on globalisation and transnationalism more widely, and on identity and difference. And I would argue his work has contributed not only to our understanding of global migration processes, but how migration itself uh, requires us to rethink the world at large in addressing wider economic, uh, political and social structures and relationships, conceptualizations of identity, divisions and connections. So tonight, Robin will be drawing on his current work with Nick Van Heer, who's also here tonight, uh, on solving the problem of mass displacement, 
which, in moving uh, beyond the limits of the existing order, or disorder, one might say, uh, sets out a major new vision for the future. So, uh, thank you, Robin. Well, let me start by thanking Isabel for her very generous uh, introduction and, of course, also to Suzanne and her colleagues at uh, the LSE for, for inviting me. Well, I'm, that's the title of the um, topic, and the word solving is obviously very ambitious, and so don't expect an absolute solution, but intimations towards a solution. And this is something that arose really quite a long time ago. Now it's two and a half years ago, the midst of the migration uh, flows across the Mediterranean where we've seen people dying, they still dying, um, as they crossed. And Nick Van Heer, a colleague of mine who's been alluded to, and I really have been doing this stuff for a long time. Nick in particular has been involved with refugee studies longer than I have. And we sense that moment at which inertia had set in when nothing was being said other than the things that we'd heard before and that somehow we felt this was the moment to kick up a storm, start thinking in more radical directions. Of course we were not the only people to do so. But I want to start by outlining the problem and I think I'll probably find a good deal of consensus in this room in the outline of the problem, talking about how other people have addressed that problem, although that's going to be rather abbreviated. The proposal that we've now um, put into circulation, creating a transnational entity called Refugia, and then spending rather more time on trying to give some theoretical underpinning to the idea rather than just give a mere exposition of it. So let's try and look at the problem itself. These data are the latest from the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. You'll see the headline number is 68.5 million. And for those of you who can't read those rather micro prints at the bottom, uh, it may be helpful to just say that 25.4 million comprises 19.9 refugees crossing borders and about 5.4 million in the care of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine. Rather relevant now because those of you who have been following the ins and outs of President Trump's tweets and actions will know that he's more or less destroyed the United States' contribution to that budget. So there's something very different going to have to happen in Gaza than has happened over the last 70 years because the budget has been severely affected. Have a look, too, at this next chart, which puts these figures in historical context. After the war, of course, there was great turmoil as people were moving around, trying to settle, find a place, and so on. They were displaced by wartime itself. But in the 50s, particularly in the mid-50s, the problem was relatively um, small. 
You're talking about three, four, you know, very small numbers uh, in that. And remember that the United Nations Convention was passed in 1951. So for at least a few years, it seemed to be, as it were, a convention that addressed the problem of refugees and was more or less working. And as we'll see in a minute, that no longer can be said. Now, of course, one of the great uh, virtue, one of the herons of the um, story in recent years has been Angela Merkel in Germany, who's been seen as somebody with, who's offered an open door to refugees and to asylum seekers, particularly at that high point in 2016. But notice um, the thing that is perhaps not quite as often said is that the number of asylum seekers and determinations are going down very dramatically. Um, the last figure, 2017, down to 186,000. The data at the bottom, rather difficult to read, indicates that the number of rejected claims is now in excess of the number of applicants. This is a kind of cumulative total. So this is really beginning to look quite uh, different from what we noticed at the beginning of the Angela Merkel period. Look at Trump's policy. Again, in historical context, he's now talking about that faint line across the middle um, is roughly the average refugee ceiling, and that's now a third of that is what he's now offering in 2019. And I want to now turn to perhaps if um, Angela Merkel is a heroine, um, the villain of the piece, I think, almost certainly must uh, be Viktor Orban in, um, in Hungary. A man who claims, and I'll quote him directly, the debate on migrants is reinterpreting the whole sovereignty debate. Who can decide who they wish to live with, said Orban. Can you force groups of aliens on them, or should you allow them to decide who they want to adopt? Orban labelled the migrants passing through his countries at the time of the greatest um, numbers, Muslim invaders, and, quote, every single migrant poses a public security and terror risk, unquote. And he put up very hastily a fence to try and stop people transiting or moving into Hungary um, and, as it were, is more or less the symbol uh, of an increasingly um, strong European-wide anti-refugee movement. The support for anti-migrant parties in Europe has grown commensurately. Poland's Law and Justice Party won 38% of the votes in October 2015. Germany's AFD grabbed 13%. And the League of, Na of the Northern League in Italy uh, formed part of the government uh, just uh, last year in March. Support across the 13 European countries for anti-immigrant parties has risen from 12.5% in January 
2013 to 25% today. So what you've basically got here is not simply the problem which we might have initially thought of um, in these terms of urging centrist and social democratic governments to live up to their international obligations, to show some generosity of spirit, to respect the conventions. Uh, What we've got here is a pushback. It's much greater than anything that we've seen uh, since the Second World War. And I want to try and illustrate that diagrammatically. This is not based on data, but this is based on, if you like, a kind of illustrative graph. So in the 1950s, those two lines were very close together, and then you've got this increasing divergence between, on the one hand, um, the number of uh, uh, the number of displacees going up, and on the other hand, number of people recognised, resettled, or returned using traditional instruments of the refugee regime, and that element there, we want to characterise, or I will characterise, as a gap of the imagination. And that's what we try to fill. Okay? We just think nothing's working anymore. Than now, we're not the only people here before. There have been other people who also have um, elaborated various schemes of a radical sort. I haven't got time to go through them in detail because... Um, I won't have time to get to some of the other aspects of my talk. And I'm just flagging up four of the the big ones. The top two across the the slide are uh, Alinikov's uh, Ark of Protection. You can find that online if those of you want to follow this through. Um, And on the right-hand side, Alex Betts and Paul Collier, two colleagues, in fact, of ours at, at Oxford, although we're in a rather different space from them. And both those top two are, if you like, insiders. They're people who've worked on refugees, uh, either academically or practically. Alinikov actually was an office holder for a number of years. And so these are people who are working from in the system, saying it's not working, we have to change it in some way or another. I'm going to have to summarise these rather quickly and so at the risk of being unfair to them, so please do look them up um, and get the full picture. So Leinikoff, um, whose book is at the moment simply uh, online but will be published shortly, but you can find the text online, basically says one of the ways we can go is to try and extend the arc of protection, that's his own expression, by abolishing or moderating the rule, initially it was called the Dublin Convention, that said only one place can process an asylum claim. And he instead argues that you can have clusters of places where uh, asylum claims can be processed and that will lead to an easing, a general easing of the system. And of course he's right in a sense because the argument initially was Asylum seekers should only have one kick of the can. That was the expression of the time. So they arrive in, uh, in Sorry, one place. A bigger pardon. Um, um, uh, you can't hear me? Yes. No, okay, bigger pardon. I'll stay closer to the mic. Thank you. Um, the argument initially was that um, you only should have one kick of the can, that 
if your asylum claim was processed in country A, that is the place where you could, only place in which you could find asylum if it was a safe country. The problem, of course, was that many asylum seekers did not necessarily want to go to the country that they first arrived in. And so they would move into an underground world. We've seen them all assemble in Calais and uh, the jungle and elsewhere. And so his argument is we may be able to ameliorate the situation by extending the arc of protection, abolishing the, the, the um, Dublin Convention. The other um, insider account is that produced by Betts and Collier, and perhaps the one that's most familiar because it's been published um, and reviewed very um, widely uh, and in, in uh, paperback form. And their argument is basically, um, why not turn refugees um, into proto-proletarians or proto-entrepreneurs? They are people with skills or who can potentially be used in special economic zones. And in particular, they are focused in, in a case, almost an exemplary case, in Jordan, uh, where a refugee camp is side by side with a special economic zone and the argument is why not use their labour in the special economic zone. Now, of course, you'll know that the strict convention prevented people from working because that implied that they were therefore workers rather than refugees or asylum seekers. So they suggest that you abolish that connection. And, of course, this has gained a lot of attention, particularly, I should say, amongst, if you like, more neoliberal side of the argument. It's been picked up by the World Bank, um, where they both have, uh, who have where they've both uh, worked and uh, given advice, and so on. And then at the bottom, too, a slightly wackier um, set of proposals... But interesting nonetheless, the first one by Dutch architect, the Dutch, incidentally, one should add, are very big on alternative and radical schemes. And if you're looking for the imaginative voice, you'll often find there's a Dutch person um, giving this. And in this case, it's a respected Dutch architect, uh, Theo Deutinger, who suggests that we can find some um, fairly low-line um, shelving between um, is it Tunisia and um, Morocco, uh, Tunisia and Italy, uh, Tunisia and Italy, a big one, and that this can be then floated and poured sand on, and we'll create a new island. It will be called Europe in Africa. And he's got it very, very carefully worked out, 150,000 carrying capacity. It will have an o a university like Oxford, or perhaps we should say LSE, in deference to the company. Um, it will have a mosque like Cairo. It will have provision grounds like Dakar in Senegal. It will have running through it a channel where people can embark or disembark and so on. And on the other side, the final and fourth one I'll mention, um, I quite like the idea of a refugee nation, and indeed we pick that up to some degree in our own proposal. But this particular proposal I'm alluding to is one made by um, a property developer called Jason Boozy in California. He has an interesting background uh, of Iraqi descent and Israeli uh, residents. Um, and he, he's 
put this out on, on, on the web and uh, has appeared and made various uh, public appearances. Um, the problem, perhaps, um, with it is, uh, will become apparent in a minute, and in, even in the phrase that I've quoted there, uh, for stateless people around the world, a state of their own. Well, of course, as we know, quite a number of the displaced people are internally displaced and therefore are not stateless. And secondly, a really grave problem, which is often the case with a number of these alternative uh, projects, is this idea that there could be a single island or a single place to which people could be sent or exported. And that has all kinds of implications uh, that, that we are hesitant about. Okay, so let's move a little bit to our proposal, our being Nick Van Heer and myself. And you'll see it's illustrated with something that's come to symbolize the Mediterranean crossings. That's to say the life jackets with the black belt. And exactly the same elements of the proposal appear on the next slide, but note the transformation of the life jacket. That's now become the flag of the refugee nation, uh, designed by Yara Said, a refugee in, uh, from Syria who's working in Amsterdam in a refugee uh, uh, practice. And indeed, there's a little workshop where um, these flags are made. They're large flags, but there's also, just to give you a little <laughs> dramatic moment, this is the little pendant that will go on your desk as you become a supporter of the scheme. And this is made in a refugee workshop in Amsterdam. Okay, so I'll take that out of the way so it doesn't distract you too much. Okay, so this is our proposal in a nutshell. And even this is abbreviated because we have published material on this and it's available online. And indeed, Nick Van Heer and I have been um, not only um, academics but now in a somewhat, somewhat advocacy capacity. We have in our bags um, some copies of other earlier papers. So if anybody wants to get one afterwards, you'll find some of this stuff much more fully um, exposed. The, in bullet point form, basically what we've suggested is not an island or a place. We don't want something that constitutes a convict ship rounding people up and dumping them somewhere. We suggest that refugia should comprise hundreds, perhaps in many, as many as 300 in the first tranche, places where refugees and asylum seekers and displacees already are. These could be urban areas, they could be agricultural sites, they could be camps, they could be where they've washed up and begin to organize. And one of our key arguments is that there are prefigurations of our proposal in the way that people are beginning to organize in these places where they already are. Okay? So it's multi-sided. It's transnational. And this is where it begins to get a little difficult to 
conceptualise, and that's why I want to spend a bit of time on the concept. It's transnational in that it's not a nation-state and it's not an international organisation. It's a unique transnational polity. It links people up, okay, digitally mainly, virtually. It's led by refugees and democratically governed. People can move into it and move out of it. They can hold the identity of a refugee or they can choose not to. They can hold it in association with prior identities, with their diasporic or heritage identity, and they can hold it in terms of the, in, in conjunction with the identity of the place to which they have settled. So this is not an exclusive identity. It is a optional and additional identity. It's digitally connected. The benefits that are conferred by joining this refugee are conveyed through something we've called a sesame chip. Actually, it comes in three forms. There's a sesame card, which is sort of old technology and looks a bit like a credit card, a smart credit card, but you can swipe it through and get benefits. And you can also think of it in, in terms of an app for your phone, but that's a little bit old tech now, and we are preferring to go for a subcutaneous model that will be planted under your skin. And what will happen is that benefits can be conferred by governments, by other elements of refugia, or by peoples of goodwill, such as, I hope, many of the people in this room. And those people we call solidarians, picking up a Greek term, people who are expressing solidarity. So let us say a solidarian wanted to offer a mosquito net to 50 um, refugees in um, South Sudan. They could simply pay through blockchain technology. They could swipe their arm at a station on the other end and the nets would be delivered. So it's an easy way of delivering things. It will enhance people's safety. It will foster mobility within, between a mobility, uh, refugee. It will also have its own sporting teams, as you may or may not know. There was already a group of 10, I think, uh, refugees who had... Uh, uh, ref refugees, I should say. They weren't refugees yet, they putative refugees um, who competed in the Olympic Games under the uh, auspices of the Olympic flag, but we hope they'll pick up the other flag. Uh, they'll have a voice in international forums, and they will negotiate for certain rights and advantages with surrounding states. We call those states somewhere states as a kind of critique of David Goodhart's uh, comment for those of you who pick, pick up some of his recent work. Now... That's rather hasty and very, um, what shall we say, easily said. All I can say is we've done it at length elsewhere, but I want to pick up much more this time because we've found over and over again in critiques, comments, and um, uh, you know, reposts to our uh, ideas that we needed to dig a little deeper into theory, perhaps would be a, pushing it a little bit hard, but certainly the, the sort of deeper thinking underneath the, the project. And that 
we will describe in those four elements here, there are actually six, but I haven't got time to do them all. Um, these four elements in our four-leaf closer are archipelagic thinking, uh, thinking in terms of an archipelago, using utopian thinking, thinking in terms of an ecotone, which I imagine will be not that familiar to people here, but uh, hopefully uh, um, you'll stick with it and we'll see how relevant it is. And finally, something that we've already enunciated in what I've said earlier on, a transnational polity, but just a little bit of the back thinking as to how we got to that state. So I'm going to just flash through some images because I think it's helpful to think in terms of images first before I actually give you some uh, words to, to, te- to chew on. So let's think about archipelagos a bit like that. That's actually, as it happens, a map of HTML <laughs> sites. Uh, but you'll notice that they're all over the place, but that they're d- connected digitally. Okay, that's what we want pe- people getting to people's head, not a single place. But, or take that one, which is a real-life archipelago, but with those little um, connecting lines, which makes it transnational, virtually digitally connected, able to have uh, some representative assemblies and virtual government which will be part of the proposal. Okay, so that just begins to get people thinking about archipelagos. And think about utopias. And the important thing to emphasize here is to avoid the commonplace, if you like, journalistic use of the word utopia, which is dismissive. Basically, it's utopian. It's not worth thinking about. It's completely out of order. It's imaginative nonsense. Um, It doesn't make any sense. Get your feet on the ground. So we accept utopias a long way away, in this case 8,535 kilometers away, and that sometimes it's backwards. But we draw your attention to a a really strong strand of new utopian thinking, which really, I think, is beginning to act as a new powerhouse uh, in the social sciences. And it's perhaps a moment, um, a number of you who are sociologists will know that just two weeks ago, Eric Olin Wright uh, died, um, a sociologist at the University of Wisconsin, who is well known for his discussion of what he called practical utopias. And, um, of course, there are other expressions, other adjectives that have been used, realistic utopias, pragmatic utopias, concrete utopias. Now, of course, what this is trying to signal is utopian thinking doesn't have to be completely out, out of whack. What, it need, what you need to do is start thinking imaginatively and then thinking along the way of how you might get there. And actually, our great guru, and we'll put a slide of her up in a moment, is Ruth Levitas, who we rather like, and who suggests that um, utopia should be used as a method. Okay, and I'll come on to that in a, a little while. And now the one that I think probably would be very unfamiliar, which is an echotone. 
So this is a term in botany or geography which alludes to the juxtaposition of two biomes. So imagine there is forest and marsh and river, I'm simplifying, and the spaces between the marsh and the forest and between the marsh and the river would create a complex mix of um, uh, interactions which would be described botanically. Now, we want to take this over. We're not... We're stealing it from two friends. We want to take this over for our purposes. And in this ecotone, we've added the word social to make clear that we're not using it botanically but sociologically. Um, In this ecotone, um, there will be all kinds of new interactions which can be loosely described as hybrid or creole. Okay, so that patterning gives you a sense of how complex these juxtapositions between the, bio, between the different biomes are. Okay, so here we go. And then finally, a transnational polity, and that we're just an artistic rep- representation of the same thing that I've been emphasizing all along. All right, now let's see if we can try and do something by way of a, a, an exposition. And this is really... Um, starting with this idea of archipelago. And I suppose one of the unfortunate associations, um, perhaps for people of a slightly older, um, is Alejandro Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago, which is this terrible thing, archipelago of labor camps across Sahara, across Siberia, I'm sorry. uh, but we're not thinking of that. Just to, just to turn that completely out of your head, in, instead, I suppose, um, the easiest um, metaphor or, uh, would be to perhaps um, think in terms of pearls strung around a necklace or stars in a constellation or islands strung out across um, a, um, a, a, a little sea or a little ocean. And, and perhaps one might even um, think in terms of uh, Longfellow's uh, description of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the stardust of, of the constellation and the stars. All right, now, this idea is intermittently appears from time to time. There's a famous Dutch architect, yet another one. Sometimes he's called a architect uh, because at some point he was so well known. He, uh, his name was Rem uh, Kuhlhaus, and he re-envisaged um, Berlin in terms of an archipelago. He said, really, what you don't want to think of as buildings punctuated by a few um, Parks, what you want to think of is a, a green sea with a few islands, a few buildings. And that our conception has been driving some of the redevelopment of, 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 of uh, Berlin. And so, in fact, architects have been picking up uh, um, some of our ideas rather, rather um, uh, in, in an interesting way. But the social theorist and the cultural theorist who we connect to and relate to most is Edouard Glissant. 
Um, those of you who don't know his work, he's from Martinique. He's died a few years ago. Um, I suppose the easiest way to describe him in an English-speaking Anglo-Saxon context would be to say he's the uh, French Caribbean's answer to Stuart Hall. You know, he's sort of very well known, very well respected, regarded as a major cultural theorist. And he asks us to engage in uh, archipelagic thinking. For him, the entire world is becoming an archipelago. Actual archipelagos, like the Caribbean, are exemplary, exemplary sites for understanding the complex new relations that ambivalently and chaotically join together all the other, all the hitherto unconnected parts of the world. Glissant calls this process the process of linking or relation, relation with a capital R, you know, in that rather beguiling francophone way, uh, which it's difficult to get quite understand for us uh, limited Anglo-Saxon minds. Um, relation has a very powerful meaning. It's a concept, the word relation. Okay, this is why, and, and the relation then doesn't, um, um, relation, is, relation ties, but it does not bind. The self to the other, the excluded to the included, the nation to the stranger. That's why Glissant consistently refers to an aesthetics or a poetics as opposed to a politics of relation. Human beings, he says, have created themselves as they what they are in reality, namely, quote, an altering that never ends in a perennial state of unsettling. So, and of course, with the aid of an archipelagic imagination, we can usefully envisage the components and connections of the transnational archipelago that will make up and constantly refashion our vision for the displaced, namely refugia. So it's not a one-off thing. It's an iterative, continuous process as connections take place, as relations on, are developed, as one refugium, the component unit of refugia, reaches out to another as it withdraws, as it connects, as it closes, as it opens. This is a continuous process of relation. Of, of relation. So our second utopian thinking, much more familiar ground, I think, here, but with this little twist of the formidable Ruth um, Levitas, who I think has it absolutely right in making the quite interesting remark that, um, you know, people say or might construct refugee as utopian, but think back to my illustrative graph. Is continuing to do exactly what we've done since the 1950s and expecting it to work when the gap is getting bigger and bigger, is that not utopianism? Is that not false thinking? Do we not need to switch the idea of, 
reverse the idea of utopian and say, let's think about something that might work rather than keep on doing things that don't work. And of course, us utopians, I'm now joined the happy tribe, quite a recent convert really, but we like to quote Oscar Wilde, 1912. A map of the world, he said, that does not include utopia is not even worth glancing at, for it leaves out the one country at which humanity is always landing, and when humanity lands there, it looks out, and seeing a better country, set sail. Progress is the realization of utopias. End quote. Good stuff from Oscar. And interestingly enough, just again to do a LSE connection with H.G. Wells, who of course was very closely associated, over a century ago, H.G. Wells wrote a book called The Modern Utopia, which he linked utopianism to the emergence of the dis- discipline of sociology and envisaged a compendium of utopian texts, a palimpsest of visions of a better society that would educate people about possible worlds and motivate them to act. This was the dream book of sociology. Drawing from this virtual archive, sociologists could compare and contrast past historical patterns with future possibilities in a dialectical dance of the imagination. I sort of love that phrase, the dialectical dance of the imagination. Well, that's an inspired way, I think, um, of trying to um, characterize what our brand of um, utopianism. So uh, even that, um, Levitas insists, it shouldn't just collapse into war games or scenario building models and blueprints. As she continues, utopia is not simply a thought experiment in a, continu- in a conventional sense, for it necessarily operates at the level of affect as well as intellect. In other words, utopianism transforms statements about what is to what could be and then what should be. Unlike the cynical realists, who empty out the utopian by reducing everything to the possible, to the possible and the acceptable, and thence ineluctably to the likely or the expedient, utopian thinking, stricto sensu, insists on including an ideal alternative, even if it appears impossible at first sight. Okay, so that's our second, as it were, theoretical inspiration. And our third... And this is our two chums, Judith Mishrahi Barak and Thomas Lecroix, um, both French, um, both, uh, well, one worked at Potier, one works at Montpellier, and they've been um, using this as a means to assemble, I think, four conferences, one in the Caribbean, one in India, one in, um, in, 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 in Poitiers, and one somewhere else, Australia or somewhere. And all they've done is issued a call for papers with a sort of a few paragraphs on the top. And I keep pleading with them and say, yeah, this is good stuff. Please write this up. Do a proper paper on this. And um, it really isn't a proper paper. So this is all we've got. And I've given you some of the succinct um, quotes um, over there from um, the uh, early uh, descriptions. But we can illustrate this um, 
this uh, idea in, in praxis. Just coincidentally, in the way these things often happen, um, there's an American proposal put out by a group called Otra Nation, other nation in Spanish, Otra Nation, other nation in Spanish, um, and they developed this proposal in um, entering a competition announced by Donald Trump to build a wall. A certain wall, which you may have heard about. <laughs> and this lot said, we don't want a wall. We want to do something different. And this is how they described it. Completely subverting Donald's uh, idea, Otter Nacion suggested that rather than a wall of separation, the countries separated by boundaries should bridge nations by creating communities based on shared principles of economic resiliency, resiliency, energy interdependence, and a trust-based society. In particular, Otra Nacion would be a shared co-nation open to citizens of both Mexico and the United States and co-maintained by their respective governments. Physical land and initial infrastructure will be provided by both countries and will be built with a full workforce of 50% Mexican, 50% American. Otra Nacion will be the world's first continental, binational, social ecotone. So they actually picked up the term, which was brilliant, quite independently, of course. Um, I could hasten to add that they didn't win the competition. But you can see the beauty of this idea. Here are these countries separated um, by uh, you know, the Rio Grande in some cases, by a wall in other cases, by caverns and so on, but with enormous amount of history in common, uh, with labor forces that are interpenetrated, with language that crosses. Why not simply create an enormous slice that in which people voluntarily can be part of that binational. So this seems to be a very, very interesting idea and something that we can work with as we begin to develop a refugee. Okay, and then finally, the last bit, and this is, I suppose, the bit that we put together, not, of course, uh, you know, without uh, being aware of other people writing on similar themes, but this, these are the underlying thoughts that we had. So let's start by saying we assumed that nation states were beginning to flag not in the way that perhaps has been conventionally discussed for many years that in response to globalization um, the nation state um, is beginning to dissolve um, uh, because of forces, supranational forces above it. Rather, what we were interested in is whether the nation-state continued to offer a solution to ethnic conflict, war, um, uh, secession, and other things that are driving refugees. Now, of course, the one thing that always happened is, if those things happened, Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, created a whole string of nation-states. But look what's actually happened historically. In 1945, the United Nations was formed by 50 states. Uh, Poland joined in, that was July, Poland joined in October, so 51. Now there are 193, nearly not quite four times the amount. If you look at when nation states are founded, 
the intervals are quite slight. And, of course, there are big moments, decolonization, end of the Soviet Union, break of, of uh, Yugoslavia, and so on. But the last one was 2011. And prizes go to the first one who sings that out. South Sudan, somebody said. Yeah. And within two years, two million people have been displaced. Total disaster. Okay? So for eight years, the longest stretch ever in the history of the United Nations, nobody has created a new nation state. 78 nations in the queue, under some counts, obviously that's contentious and you can, you, you can argue with that. 78 plausible claimants to a nation state, not one since 2011. It will be very sad if the clerds and the, don't quite make it, but it is getting more and more apparent that this isn't the solution. A nation state isn't the solution, creating yet a nation state. Secondly, there are many other units within, with global reach, and this perhaps goes back to that earlier argument that I think it was 2009, I think I might have got the year uh, wrong by a day or so, uh, a year or so, when there were more economic units, uh, 61 of the 120 units were m- corporations, multinational corporations with greater uh, economic power than the nation, 59 units, uh, the units that were nation states. So more, more units with global reach. The state, it's, the nation itself is deterritorializing um, in response to global networks, diasporization, and so on. National identities are not the only show in town. We're not only Malians and um, Norwegians and Brits, and I know, of course, that there were a lot of people who voted for Brexit and a lot of people who voted for Trump and a lot of people who voted for, for Orban. But there are also many, there's a great deal of evidence that national identities are not as salient as they once were. For a start, you may make the simple observation that over 50 countries now allow, allow dual nationality. That was very unusual historically. So people have two nationalities, more nationalities, or they are not that bothered about their national identity. They think in terms of sub-national identities or identities that are based on other things, for example, on gender preferences or even more exotic things like interests and you know, who they connect to in the virtual world. So we argue that there's been a shift from what we broadly adopted this term heritage identity and um, I've said here on the slide purpose of identity but Nick and I were talking about maybe we should have relational identity over there, I'm not sure but anyway, an identity that is constructed for a purpose rather than is simply inherited and finally, and this is really something that needs much more Work and it really constituted one of our big theoretical interventions, um, making homes on the move. And here we're very indebted to a number of um, scholars who've been interested in gender issues and how in particular um, home is constructed. 
and we think in particularly uh, 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 of, of Brin and uh, Fabos in, in this respect. Okay, so that, that was our background thinking and how we got to the um, how we got to the argument. So I want to just wrap up now by just summarising the argument and leaving, if I may, um, some of those um, references on the slide so if those of you who want to follow through can do so for other bits of the talk that I didn't have a chance uh, to discuss. So I would surmise, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I would surmise that there's broad agreement on the problem and that there is a gap of the imagination and that the conventional solutions, which are based essentially on convention uh, drawn up in 1951, amended subsequently in 68 and elsewhere, but really they're not working. The international refugee regime is now like a hamster on a wheel. And the sense is not simply that we can do the same thing over and over and over again, but we now have to accelerate some alternatives because, if you like, the anti-refugee lobby uh, is now beginning to act in a rather malevolent way. The radical solutions that have been proposed divide perhaps between those people who are inside the tent who are trying to reform the re regime, the refugee regime from within, and those who, if you like, are outside the tent who are simply saying, look, this can't go on, uh, people who are architects, who are in one case a real estate developer, um, people who are just simply offering new solutions. And our argument is not that these people are wrong, quote-unquote, because I don't think that's where we are. We all feel, or we both feel, that we're all trying to come to grips with a real problem here. And what we're trying to do is to take things into our system that we feel could work. Well, if somebody wants to build um, a Europe in Africa on a, uh, some, some shelving um, you know, in the middle of the Mediterranean, we're not going to say no, but we're going to say, fine, that's 150,000 people maximum. How is it going to be financed? And don't, will it work? And couldn't it be, could it be part of our refugia? So it would be for us a refugium, not a solution, but part of our solution. So we've tried to think here in terms of... Um, um, acceptance of what other people are doing, but also try to develop a critical voice. And that critical voice has been influenced by these deeper kinds of thinking, archipelagic, social ecotones, a utopian method, and finally arriving at our solution of refugia, a new kind of transnational polity. So I'll be happy to um, accept questions and discussion. Thank you very much for coming to listen to this. Thank you very much, Robin. We'll now take questions. So uh, we'll perhaps take uh, two or three questions at a time. So anyone like to start? If you could just say your name and if you're affiliated to a particular institution. Uh, hi, I'm a postgraduate student. 
uh, in King's College London. Uh, I have a question. Uh, could you explain more about why and how we need uh, establish the refugees' uh, identity? That's my question. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Ludovic. I'm studying international migration at LSE. Um, I was wondering who would determine who would have the right to who has who would determine who has the right to access these refugiums, and in turn, who would guarantee the protection of the rights of those people within them? Take one more question. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Paul McGrail, Peace News. Um, in, the, in the absence, the current absence, of total absence of, of political or moral leadership, I mean, there's just nothing on the horizon of this sort. Um, so I was wondering if you could give a precy of, of the, the, the current... Um, so not solutions, but what countries are doing, do a, a comparative analysis as to what the European and countries and, and perhaps Canada and Australia, what they're doing now. And if you could, um, I, th I have some understanding of what Canada does, and I, th I think they should be applauded, but they do cherry pick. They vet people before they arrive. They don't have this chaos that, I've experienced at Calais and Dunkirk and elsewhere. Okay, very great question. And let me start with the issue of identity. And I think, uh, all right, that's the the phrase that we had in the in the presentation is important for us. The movement from a heritage identity to a purposive identity. Now, a lot of um, people have been anxious when we de developed this proposal, um, ha have been concerned, not anxious, have been concerned that some of the um, ethnic, religious, and other heritage identities that have caused conflict in the first place or have accelerated conflict, will simply repeat in the context of refugia. In other words, how are we going to ensure that um, refugia will not look like the South Sudan, just to be, make it as simple as possible? Now, we've got a couple of answers. They're not perfect answers, so let's just start by saying expressing some humility here. We don't sort of feel this, we've completely cracked this. But this is, this is a partial answer. The first answer is there's some quite strong evidence that identities are being refashioned on the move, on the journey. So people, for example, who are sharing danger, who've shared a history of dispossession and displacement, who've perhaps been bombed, who've met other displacees from similar or different ethnic backgrounds along a journey have begun to effect some degree of consensus, 
and there's some you know real research evidence around around that it's not perfect because of course people can get to the other end of that chain and fall out again and so what we um, I think are realistically conceiving is that each refugee will have broadly speaking a historical um, um, doesn't have to have and we'd be delighted if it didn't have but it may very well have um, historically uniform or near uniform identity so if we're thinking of Rohingyans who are now in, the Bangladesh, in Bangladesh obviously there are subgroups within the Rohingya we just have grouped uh, Rohingyans in a group there are 127 sub-ethnicities in, in, in the Rohingya but for the sake of argument, those are going to have Rohingyan character. There's not going to be a whole lot of Syrians in Bangladesh. So what we are hoping for is the form of identity construction across refugee at large will be forms of cooperation. Obviously, they are, we've already got a blueprint in the form of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and we would assume people in joining refugee would um, go through some sort of process of accepting that. Okay, that they accept the basic right. We've talked, incidentally, to constitutional lawyers who've drawn up the South African Constitution, um, which is quite an interesting um, constitution because, of course, it's um, now it's very progressive. But it demonstrates the problem of, um, you know, the constitution doesn't necessarily uh, ensure that the political practice follows the constitution. But anyway, we think that we there might be some play in drawing up a constitution through the constituent units of refugee, through a consultative process um, that would go on between within a refugee itself. So we're hoping, therefore, that heritage identities will become less salient and purposive or relational identities will become more salient. So I would not say I've answered your question fully and satisfactorily. There is an element here of wishful thinking, perhaps, but that's where we hope to go with that. So I think this perhaps uh, uh, immediately debouches into your question because the issues of security are very important, clearly. And there are a number of different possibilities here. One possibility is for a relationship to be developed with the surrounding country. So let us say we are talking about a refugium in Italy, which has a high degree of autonomy, but is um, uh, effectively has, um, is emplaced in, in, in Italy, and the people coming into Italy from the refugium or from Italy into the refugee could be policed by Italian police using the normal, uh, the normal uh, uh, sources at their, at their disposal. So that's one possibility. Um, we are anxious to not uh, replicate uh, armed force. So, I mean, we prefer, if you like, Costa Rica to uh, uh, <laughs> the United States if we're thinking in terms of you know, armed units. So we're hoping refugee won't need that. 
the one thought that I think may work is to develop a fairly sophisticated uh, algorithm which would be um, looking at a particular area where people have arrived, what their ecological constraints, water, land, climate, and building, what the number of people already are there, uh, the number of people who are in the surrounding country um, who are prepared to tolerate uh, them, and put this in some sort of um, algorithm which would then guide the refugee into saying, well, sorry, we can't take more people. You'll have to found your new refugee, your new refugium. So that's the idea. Not everybody goes into one place. And these places become working, working communities with the agreement of the communities around them and with some degree of internal consensus. We have, of course, dreams of Agora, the Greek traditional um, community meeting, including slaves and women, by the way. So I know know that's often uh, (laughs) mentioned when you talk about ancient Greek democracy. Um, Of course, we include everybody. So that's our idea of of security. Um, And then I think the last one was, what is a comparative experience? And what there's some very interesting things to say about this. And you've drawn attention to Canada, which, as you say, is a, is, is a, a, a refugee shopping, rather smart refugee shopping. So Trudeau looks good, and he can appear on the televisions. He can contrast himself with Daniel, with Donald um, Trump. He's not necessarily solving the problem on a large scale, but he is demonstrably doing something different from the United States, which always helps Canadian self-esteem. The Australians, on the other hand, um, have turned themselves into monsters. They are more or less on the dystopic side of this spectrum. So using Christmas Island and Nauru and so on, dumping people into islands offshore, saying they're part of Australia for one purpose, but they're not for other purposes. So um, they're part of Australia in the sense that we can dump them there, but not they haven't any free movement between here and there. So it's a kind of Guantanamo Bay kind of situation. And of course the variety of outcomes in Europe is very, very interesting, but one that I think um, has attracted some attention, because it's, it's such a fascinating case, is this little village of Riace, which is in Calabria, um, a village of about 1,500 indigenous people, long-standing residents would be a better way of putting it. And the mayor said, the village is dying, the post office is closing, the school is closing, let's have these refugees. And he, he had 450, so it's quite a significant chunk of the population, quarter of the population, filling um, empty apartment blocks. He himself had a relationship with one of them, which then turned out to be ammunition for the new Minister of the Interior, namely uh, uh, Salvini, who uh, took him to task for this and uh, then declared that this was illegal and uh, in various ways challenged this and has actually sought to close this whole experiment down. So... What you got in Italy, and I think this is actually a bit of a generalization that you might want to draw from the European experience, is quite often local solutions but national resistance. 
so that you're getting a kind of tension between the nation-state, at least as it's been taken over by the right wing, and local mayors who are trying to revive old rural, rural, really dispossessed cities and who are prepared to play along with a much more generous, um, generous thing. However, I think it might be added, and this is where we didn't, I didn't really have a chance to say much about this, but um, we might want to add that we are very keen on not looking at what people are doing to or for refugees, but what initiatives are coming from refugees. And in that respect, there's some really quite encouraging um, developments, um, you know, in Syria, in Lebanon, uh, and, and elsewhere, where people are beginning to self-organize. And this is an exaggeration, I know, and not many people would, well, at least there's a strong argument against doing this, is that camps can turn into cities um, as they begin to develop their own economic functions and their famous stories of um, you know, a camp in Syria where has the best bakery in Syria and people from all over the country come to buy their bread there and so on. And so, you know, these things can happen, but they happen at the level of the local uh, refugee community. What we're trying to do is to say, let's link that up. Let's try to put some, some motor in. Let's try to put some, um, I don't want to use diesel because that's forbidden. Some, some clean fuel uh, in this um, motor and start motoring this along so people can connect with each other and so if there's too many refugees in one place you can say we've got too few in another place uh, or they can get involved in digital work like Upwork which is a commercial thing but Refugia would run a non-commercial one you could for example think of ah we'll have a, um, everybody's CV can be loaded on. And if a Brazilian um, person, a Brazilian uh, local government wants to have a dentist in uh, Amazonia from Syria who speaks a little bit of Portuguese, then they'll, and then they'll load onto their Sesame app. Here's your ticket, here's your visa, get on the plane, you and your family, bam-bam. Okay, so you create mobility as well as security. This is not, in other words, a dump. This is a kind of place where people can grow and energize and, and begin to create a new world for themselves. So uh, I hope I addressed the point. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. More questions? Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Professor. Um, I, I'm a Chinese undergraduate student. Yes. Uh, my question is, um, to what extent will the refugee ar arrangement decrease the further far-right-wing movement since the current circumstances become more and more pessimistic? Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Fraser Barr, um, Edinburgh University. 
Um, I guess my question really is, do you see yourself, if this does kind of kick off, becoming a victim of your own success? Um, being a victim of your own success, as in re will refugee become a victim of his own success? Um, for example, you know, I'm from Galashills, up, up, um, up in the borders of Scotland, and people there don't really have jobs. Or, and not, not refugees themselves, but do you not see that people who perhaps wouldn't kind of be, have been refugees before become kind of almost economical refugees and also tying into that um, kind of environmental refugees in the future how is that how, how are you refugee kind of be part of the solution to that I guess okay thanks um, my name's Naomi Whitbourne I'm actually a former student um, in, in migration studies at, at Oxford um, my question is really understanding the economy of, of refugee, re refugee um, a little bit more. Um, I suppose my first part of that is, you, you call them, I think, solidarians. Um, is the idea that refugee is built primarily on funding by sort of, by sort of dino do donations? And if so, how can we escape the, the sort of dependency that that may bring? Um, and, and also related to that, is part of the solution encouraging economies and, and I guess, labour um, within refugee? And if that's the case, what sort of structures um, and support for that labour um, are you proposing? Shall I take those through? Okay, these are good questions again. All right, so um, I, I think I've got the top one right. What you basically are saying and in a way, uh, if I'm understanding this question right, we could find ourselves the victims of our own success. That is to say, if refugee actually works, I think this is what your implication is, it will attract further refugees and create a counter-reaction, a more, even more angry, even more... Um, in, uh, intransigent right-wing reaction to refugees. Is that more or less what you're arguing? Okay, good. Well, I think the way I would put it is this. Um, there's quite a large um, uh, uh, there's quite, quite a large hurdle before you become a refugee or a displacee. I mean, most people don't do it out of choice. Most people are doing it because they have to. They're displaced by war and so on. So I think, like a lot of things, you can't argue something simply by one side of an equation. You've got to say also that the causes of um, uh, displacement have to be addressed in some way. Um, now, of course, we now have a rather... Um, vicious situation from West Asia right through uh, the Middle East to Western uh, Sahara, which is in more or less a state of perma conflict, where you know uh, involves all kinds of substitution powers coming in, um, proxy wars fought by um, all kinds of people on other territories, and it's not looking good. So I do think one has to have some intervention at that level to reduce, if you like, the natural supply of refugees into refugees. I don't think refugee is going to be so attractive, so idyllic, so benevolent, 
so affluent as it will create a wonderful lodestar for people all over the world. I mean, I think one has to admit that what probably is more realistic is this will be something that will work, um, but a lot better than what is, which is people are dying, they are having huge mental problems, they are, um, children are growing up without education, and so on. And I think we're looking at something that, if you like, is ameliorative rather than completely revolutionary. So I don't sense that we're going to have a massive supply of new refugees which will trigger further uh, responses by the right. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe that's unrealistic. But I think that does flow into the um, next, the next question, I, I suppose, um, which was to... Um, look at the. Uh, am I right in saying? What, can you remind me of the question? To look at the that uh, people's economic uh, circumstances are such that um, they might. Sorry, do you want to repeat? Just, just, you know, if, if I can get a chip, um, you know, if I'm a dentist who speaks Portuguese, and I'm living in you know um, Scotland, for example, and, just, and, I, and I want to live in Brazil, that's a Okay. Okay, 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 okay. All right. Well, what, I, there's, that, sorry, I, I, I've got your question from him. The, the, na the natural inhibition of not wanting to be a refugee at all, but as you say, mobility is the name of the game here. And if you are saying, let us try and create a sedentary population rather than a mobile population, or let us try and stabilize populations, then you've got to do something to make those populations stable. At the moment, we know that there's a higher and higher degree of mobility, and I think one person, your next questioner, raised the issue of climate refugees, which is going to propel this even further. So one idea, one thought, and this um, might work or might not work, but as we're in this group thinking about world inequalities, we might want to think in terms of a um, basic income, income grant for people on the other end of the migration chain, so, which is only payable in the original country of birth. Now, that would, as it were, or may stabilize people who are so desperate that they're searching for some kind of livelihood out. It's not going to address people who are leaving because there's conflict. It's not going to address people because they're, they, you know, they're being killed because of their religious views or their political views. But it may address some of those more um, economic uh, reasons and um, economic uh, arguments. And our final question actually raises the issue of the economy. And Okay, so here's where our heads are at. I think we have to link this proposal much closer to some of the thinking of the green economists who are talking in terms of um, reducing um, gross national product as the uh, uh, GDP and, and growth rates as the only index of economic growth. But thinking much more in terms of sustainability, renewability, and lack of damage. So starting from the principle of do no harm, refugia will be trying to create livelihoods 
which would not damage the planet and further accelerate the conditions that would create further refugees. So that's the basic principle of the economy. Planet and people, not profit and bank balance. Now, can that work? I think digital economy, upworking, remote working, and working inside the refugia to construct uh, the basic infrastructure, houses, and so on, take the simplest kind of example there. You'll probably know that most camps are use UNHCR-approved tents. They have a life of seven months. The, there's, a high, there's a lot of dispute about how long people are staying in camps, but it's not seven months. Uh, the, the, the biggest uh, uh, figure is 14 years, but most people have now derided that and said, no, it's more like five years. But it doesn't make sense to put somebody in a tent for the last seven months if they're going to stay there on average on five years. So um, IKEA, our good friends from Sweden, have developed a refugee kit that can be unpacked and assembled, and one of the things that people with the skills in refugee can do is start assembling refugee kits, houses, um, start uh, wiring up digital... Um, these these uh, IKEA houses have digital connections. Start doing uh, site and service schemes with... They can start creating roads and sewage works and things of that kind. So a lot of economy in just putting the, the country together. And finally, or the society or the refugium together. And finally, they can work outside in the surrounding country, which is, in fact, the Betts and Collier uh, example. And, not, and that's... Penultimately, as it turned out, because what I've forgotten is, of course, that many of these people have got diasporan contacts who are prepared to sustain them through, uh, through remittances. So rather than sending the remittance to South Sudan, they'll send it to refugia. And this is all in addition to people of good fo- goodwill, solidarians such as us, or foundations, or, and this I think comes back to the point and I don't think I've fully answered your question, comes back to your question, is that is the surrounding state going to be very unhappy? I don't think so. In a way, you could say this is a a sort of Faustian pact. They can come to a deal with these refugees and say, okay, if you're working in our hospital, you pay our tax. Um, If you're using our services, we expect you to pay for them. So there could be a double taxation agreement with the surrounding uh, countries, and it could be a way of them saying, we don't have to deal with this problem anymore. There's another entity, and refugees are dealing with their own, taking in their own problems. So it could be, I'm not talking about crazy right-wing people like uh, Victor Orban or Donald Trump or or, or Salvini, but let us say the normal centrist politician might say, yeah, that works for me. You know, we'll go with this. Robin, thank you very much. I thought it was uh, very uh, inspiring to have a talk and discussion about uh, utopian futures, given that some often we're sort of faced with uh, 
rather dismal futures yes. around us. And uh, as academics, we're often accused of not uh, coming up with any solutions to some of the uh, problems that we spend our time uh, studying. So it was uh, yeah, a very inspirational uh, talk that you gave. So thank you to uh, everyone for your interesting questions. We have um, uh, a gift to those who have contributed to Rowan, uh, Robin and uh, Nick's vision of refugia. So uh, I'd like to hand over to Nick and Suzanne. Our Thanks for all those brilliant questions, which, some of which we've had on many occasions before, but others are new iterations. So we narrowed it down to two uh, questions. One was on the security and access and the other was on the economy one, but we don't want to sound like an Oxford stitch so we don't want for your question as winning the, the prize. We will now be presented to you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so finally, I'd, I'd just like to say thank you very much, Robin, for joining us uh, this evening, and uh, viva refugia. <laughs>